Good morning. If you brought your Bibles this morning, we'll be in Genesis chapter 14. Isn't this tree amazing? Way to go, Brittany and Jessica Lavelle, for finding that tree after six hours of looking. And I think Melissa also was part of that. So thank you. It's beautiful. All right. So we've been in a detour from Galatians studying the life of Abraham. Now, this has been a helpful detour because Paul, the writer of Galatians, stakes so much of his argument in the book of Galatians on the idea that Abraham is the father of faith, meaning that Abraham did not obtain the promises of God through the keeping of the law, but rather by faith, a.k.a. believing what God said and acting on it. So we have been taking a detour from that letter to the Galatians, and we've been spending a total of seven weeks looking at the life of Abraham, and therefore the life of faith. We've been discovering how the rubber meets the road in the life of faith. How does walking with God by faith actually look in a real person's life? And we've seen that Abraham hasn't always gotten it right. But still, he has shown tremendous faith in his actions. In chapter 12, we learn that he packs up his bags, packs up his family. He leaves his homeland, as well as his father and his mother. And he goes to a land that God says he will show him. In other words, he follows God's call into the unknown, like Elsa does in Frozen 2. She doesn't follow God's call, though. She follows something weird. But (laughs) then a famine strikes the land that he was brought to, and he is forced to find food and shelter and pasture in Egypt. And this is where we see him get it wrong. He gets scared. He enters the land of Egypt, and he's worried that because his wife, Sarah, is beautiful, that the leaders of Egypt will kill Abraham to get to her. And so he lies to them and tells them that she is his sister to save his own skin. But God protects Sarah as well as Abraham, and Abraham ends up leaving the land of Egypt an incredibly wealthy man because Pharaoh had bestowed lavish gifts on Abraham thinking he was Sarah's brother. So he returns to the land God called him to, And he seems to have learned his lesson. Last week in chapter 13, we read that Abraham and Lot, Lot is his nephew that he brought with him, their their households, their their, uh, cattle, and their possessions are growing and growing, and there's not enough room for them in where they've settled. And so Abraham unexpectedly and surprisingly gives Lot, his nephew, lesser and in in um, hierarchy, first pick. He says, Lot, why don't you 
Look around and see where you want to settle, and then I'll decide after that. So Lot chooses what looks like the best possible place he could settle down. He moves to settle on the border of Sodom, a city you may have heard of. TBD on how that choice pans out for him. But then Abraham, he leaves his fate to God. He says, okay, I'm not going to pick first. I'm going to let God pick for me. And God then, in chapter 13, he reaffirms his covenant with Abraham, telling him that as far as you can see, north, south, east, and west, it will all be yours and your offspring's land. And that offspring, God says, will number even more than the very dust particles of the earth. That's how many descendants I'm going to give you, oh, 75-year-old who doesn't even have one kid yet. So that's where we have left Abraham. So today's passage will be in chapter 14, verses 17 uh, through 15, chapter, uh, verse 1. Today's passage documents an encounter with one of the most mysterious characters in all of Scripture. Today's passage also marks a significant turning point in the life of Abraham. Our sermon today is entitled, Trusting God's Prize. And it's because in today's passage, Abraham sees firsthand what God is capable of. Until now, he's only followed God's call and walked by faith, but he hasn't yet seen for himself how powerful and good and faithful and kind this God is. And because of this, Abraham gains a taste for the blessings of God, and he loses his taste for the things of the world. Before Anna and I had our first daughter, Ella, we had a cat. Our cat was named Lady Gray, and we loved our cat. She was special to us. We got her maybe six months after we got married. And for somebody who, who didn't have kids yet, this was an important member of our family. However, upon the birth of our first daughter, Ella, our cat lost its luster in our eyes. We just didn't look at our cat the same because we had Ella. We couldn't explain it. It's not that we didn't like our cat. We just didn't like her that much anymore because of the relative grandeur and beauty and awe of receiving our first child. And it we, the cat lost its luster. <laughs> no offense to those of you who only have, um, you know, four-footed children. That's great. But just that relative value system that shifted upon having Ella changed everything in relation to our cat. And something like that happens to Abraham this morning. Let's go ahead and read chapter 14, verses 17 through 15, verse 1. After his return from the defeat of Kedor Laomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva, 
that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Anner, Esol, and Mamert take their share. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this man that lived a life of faith that we can look at, we can, we can glean from, we can learn from. Thank you that he was merely a man, so we can learn from his mistakes, but he was also a man that you made promises to, and we can relate with that as well. Lord, help us to cling to the promises you've made to us so that the other things that we get distracted by would lose their luster. Please teach us by your word and by your Holy Spirit today. In Jesus' name, amen. So how many of y'all had heard of the name Melchizedek before reading this story this morning? Yeah, at least half. Today we can divide our passage into three sections. First, Abram pre-Melchizedek. Second, Abram encounters Melchizedek. And third, Abram post-Melchizedek. The reason I divide it up like that is because there's something about this encounter with Melchizedek that stirs Abram up. This encounter marks the first time Abram publicly and verbally, at least according to the words we have here, declares his allegiance to God. This encounter shakes Abram of the desire for worldly riches. And most importantly, it's after this encounter that Abram throws all his eggs into this one basket, trusting this God who made him promises. And so, in verse 17, we see Abram pre-Melchizedek. But reading verse 17 assumes you kind of know what has been going on up to now. And that is in verses 1 through 16 of chapter 14. And we haven't read that yet. But it's really important to know what happens in order to know what happens next to get the gist of what has taken place so far, especially to understand Abram's perspective in our passage this morning. So we're going to read verses 1 through 16 quickly. And I want you to keep your ear out 
for these characters. The king of Sodom, Lot, and Abram. All right. Verse 1 of chapter 14. In the days of Amraphel, steady yourself, there's a lot of names. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, Kedor Laomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goyim. These kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemeber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is, Zor. And all these joined forces in the valley of Sidim, that is, the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Kedor Laomer, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Kedor Laomer and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim in Ashtoreth, Karnaim, the Zuzim in Ham, the Emim in Sheva, Kiriathim, and the Horites in their hill country of Ser, as far as El Paran on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazazon Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zor, went out and they joined battle in the valley of Sidim with Kedor Laomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goyim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of bitumen pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. Pause. So basically, there's four kings from more foreign places, Mesopotamia in the east and beyond. And these include King Kedor Laomer. And so these four kings, foreign kings, had a battle with five more local kings in the, in the area of modern Israel, near the Dead Sea. They had this epic battle of nine armies, and this included the king of Sodom. And so these four kings defeated these five kings and then subjugated these five kings and their peoples for 12 years. But in the 13th year, the five local kings, including the king of Sodom, grows tired of this foreign influence, this foreign rule, and they rebel, a.k.a. they stop paying tribute. Not surprisingly, after these five local kings stop paying them tribute, the four foreign kings come, and they desire to put these rebellious local kings in their place. And they do so. And we have another battle of nine armies. And in the same location of 14 years prior, near the Dead Sea, these four foreign kings rout the five local kings, including the king of Sodom, and it's not even a contest. All right, let's keep reading. Verse 12. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions, and went their way. Then... One who had escaped came and told Abram, the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshol and of Aner, 
These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he, Abram, brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. So Abram hears of his nephew Lot being captured and he springs into action. We have here a glimpse of the wealth and power that Abram has already accumulated in the land. He has 318 trained men as part of his household, which would have included children of servants, etc. Obviously, none of his own kids yet. But Abram is able to do what not even five armies had been able to do thus far. Defeat these foreign kings, recapture the people, and repossess everything that was taken. This is like the, the, the legend 300 except reverse. Because in the legend 300, the Spartans all die. But Abram takes 300 men and he defeats four large armies of four kings that had been subjugating this land for 14 years and he routs them. He accomplishes his primary goal of rescuing his kinsmen, Lot. He pursues them all the way north of Damascus, which is many, many miles. It's quite extraordinary. Abraham, sorry, Abram, currently, pre-Melchizedek, was a beast. Holy smokes, it's incredible. This story is miraculous. And so here in verse 17, Abram is on his way home from this epic victory. And it says, After his return from the defeat of Kedor Laomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him, at the valley of Sheva, that is, the king's valley. So the king of Sodom, who has just been humiliated in defeat and retreat, he perhaps fell into a bitumen pit over up in uh, verse 10. He comes to meet Abram in the king's valley, which is near Salem, which would become Jerusalem. And we aren't really privy to what Abraham is thinking at this point. We're, we're not sure what he's planning to do with the spoils of victory that he has in his possession. Based on Abram's willingness to enrich himself back in Egypt in chapter 12, I imagine he was originally planning to keep some of it. But we aren't told. So that's just speculation. But in verse 18, we are interrupted from this meeting. We're interrupted by another encounter. It's quite fascinating because if verses 18 through 20 were removed from your Bibles right now, you would not notice. Because straight from verse 17, you could read into verse 21 and it would just flow super normally. Because it says, the king of Sodom went out to meet him. And then in verse 21, and the king of Sodom said, 
But these verses, 18 through 20, are here. (laughs) And they are significant to the life of Abraham because they contain his brief encounter with the current king of what would become Jerusalem, Melchizedek. So Abram here encounters Melchizedek. Verses 18 through 20 says, And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Now, it was completely normal and appropriate for a local king to come out and offer congratulations and even celebrate the victor of a battle. So Melchizedek's appearance here isn't unusual in and of itself because the meeting place where Abram was about to meet with the king of Sodom was on Melchizedek's doorstep just outside of Salem. But who is Melchizedek? Firstly, the word Melchizedek might be his name, or likely it's his title. It means king of righteousness. He is the king of Salem, it says, which means peace. So Abram is greeted warmly and hospitably by this king of righteousness, king of peace fellow. Melchizedek lays out a banquet for Abram, and offers two blessings. One for Abram on behalf of God Most High, and one for God Most High himself. Both blessings direct the action to God. God is the possessor, or your uh, translation might say creator, of heaven and earth, and has blessed Abraham, as we already know. But he has also personally delivered Abram's enemies into his hand. Or in other words, this spectacular military victory does not belong only to Abram, but to God Most High, who has delivered the victory to Abram. Melchizedek essentially says to Abram, See, this is how powerful this God is to do what he has promised you. This is the first time the title God Most High, or El Elyon, is used in Scripture, but it's not the last. And Abram immediately adopts it in his upcoming response to the king of Sodom. The dots are connecting for Abram, who now has some context For what sorts of things are under the jurisdiction of this God who made him promises? We have all heard promises, received promises even, from people who are either not good enough to keep them or not powerful enough to keep them. But God is both good enough and powerful enough to keep his promises. This is what Abram is hearing from this mysterious king of Salem. But it's no wonder because Melchizedek, in verse 18, is also given the title of priest. It says, he was priest of God Most High. 
So in revealing that God was the one who delivered these kings into Abram's hand, and therefore the spoils of victory, Melchizedek connects the gifts to the giver, the promises to the one who makes the promises. Melchizedek is a priest to Abram. He mediates. He connects Abram to God. And that's the end of the encounter. It's short and sweet. Let's continue reading to see how Abram responds. So we get Abram post Melchizedek, starting in verse 20 at the end. And Abram gave him, Melchizedek, a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Anner, Eshol, and Mamre take their share. And after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. So Abram is clearly struck by this show of hospitality, blessing, and worship of God that he just experienced with this king of Salem, Melchizedek. And so he responds. The first thing he does is he gives Melchizedek a tenth, 10% of all the spoils of victory that he just obtained. Then the king of Sodom finally gets his audience with Abram, who he owes big time, who just saved his people and his possessions. And the king of Sodom asks Abram to, can you please return all my people, but you can, you know, keep kind of whatever you want from the material wealth that you recovered. And so this here in verse 22 is, is where we notice the change that has taken over Abram. Based on Abram's travels in Egypt, like I mentioned earlier, I would expect him to go ahead and keep what he rightfully earned. God has delivered him the victory, after all. But we are allowed to listen in on Abram's first documented and public declaration of his devotion to God. He borrows from the verbiage heavily from Melchizedek and says, I have lifted my hand, or I have taken a solemn oath. What might be the equivalent of, you know, I, I cross my heart and hope to die, or I place my hand on a Bible for us. He, he's just swearing it. He says, I have lifted my hand to who? To the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. So Abraham recognizes that the title Melchizedek gave to God applies to the God he already knows, Jehovah. He continues, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say I have made Abram rich, and I'll take nothing but what I've already eaten, <laughs> me and my people, as well as I don't want to leave anything out from those who went with me. So Abram proves us wrong here. He doesn't personally take anything 
from the spoils of his own victory. After this encounter with Melchizedek, the spoils lose their luster in his eyes. And he solidifies his allegiance to the one who had promised even greater things than the spoils of war. Innumerable descendants, land as far as the eye could see. And then we have verse 1 of chapter 15. It says, Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Other translations, including the NIV, says, I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. God has not just promised offspring and land to Abram, but himself. God would be his reward. It's through this priestly work of Melchizedek that Abram really begins to trust in the prize that God has for him over and above any prize he could obtain from association with the world. And Genesis 14 is not the last word on Melchizedek. He bears mysterious significance to the priestly role of Jesus himself. David, King David, writing of the Messiah, in Psalm 110, verse 4, says, The Lord has sworn forever and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. What? After the order of this two, three verse character in Genesis? And that carries us all the way to Jesus. And the author of Hebrews offers a lengthy treatment on the relationship of Melchizedek and his priesthood to the high priesthood of Jesus himself. Hebrews 5 through 7, that's your homework. Jesus is our great high priest, the one and only final high priest, the one mediator between man and God. But where does he inherit this role? It's not from the Levitical priesthood, because that was from the line of Aaron in the tribe of Levi. Jesus is of the line of Judah. So he gets his priesthood from someone who the author of Hebrews says is greater than Abraham. As you can see here, Abram tithed to Melchizedek. Abram was blessed by Melchizedek. Abram was served in a priestly fashion by Melchizedek. And so Jesus gets his priesthood from someone else, someone who has no genealogy listed in Scripture. And some folks conjecture that Melchizedek was what is called a Christophany, or pre-incarnate manifestation of Christ. You can't really be dogmatic about that, but it's interesting. But others say he was simply one, a, a non-Israelite king who maintained the original monotheism of the human race. He worshipped the real God. Either way, Melchizedek does foreshadow Christ. Jesus is our great high priest who offered himself once for all time. Jesus is our feast, our bread and wine. Jesus is our king, the king of righteousness, the king of peace. In Jesus, all the promises of God are yes and amen, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. 
Promises like, He is currently preparing a place for you. Promises like nothing, not even death, can separate you from the love of God. Jesus at Christmas time became Emmanuel, God with us, our prize. And it's when we look at that prize, it's when we look at Jesus that the luster of this world becomes dim in our eyes. That old hymn rings true. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. A couple weeks ago, I, I had one of those moments where I, <clears throat> I sort of came to. I'm sure many of you have had those moments in 2020 where you're just, you feel like you've been in a fog for days or weeks or months. But I, I came to and I realized, wow, this year has been tough. <laughs> But secondly, that I was asking the world to provide what I needed. I was asking the world to provide the coping and the comfort that I needed to get through it. Watching as much good TV as I could. Striving to maintain peace in all my relationships. Looking for fulfillment in my work. It was like I came to myself and I realized none of it is doing that. None of it is doing it for me. It's like I, I turned my attention back onto my cat for a minute and <laughs> neglected the fact that I have a beautiful child. And in those moments, the Holy Spirit reveals that and points out Hey, you know, those things, they're good things and they're gifts. But they're not the gift. They're not the prize. And if you don't yet know the joy of what God has promised and ultimately provided in Jesus, I would encourage you to take a good look at it again. That yes, you are more sinful than you realize, but hey, guess what? You are more loved than you ever dared hope. God has delivered us the victory from our sin in Jesus' victory over death itself. Death died. Therefore, we can know God and have God as our prize forever. Now, that hope is worth going out on a limb for. So let's take our cue from Abraham and go all in with this God who gave us himself. Are you spending time in his word every day? He wants to refresh you before and after the battles that you face. Are you asking for his Holy Spirit to lead you throughout your day? That is one of his promises. That Jesus said that how much does God love us that he will give his Holy Spirit to anyone who asks? That's a promise. Now, this year has been the absolute worst. Do you have believers that you're in close fellowship with currently 
like today or yesterday that know what's really going on with you and how, to, how they can pray for you. If you don't, press in with one person this week. And family, let's pursue our neighbors and our coworkers, those that we do get to see, in relationship so that they might know the love of Jesus. In our prayer meeting this morning, the theme for me seemed to be creativity. That there's so many problems. There's so many people that are in need. There's so much inside of myself that I can't even, you know, can't even. We have to get creative. And guess what? We have the God who created. We have the very source of creativity himself. And so he can empower us to do that. Let's display to our city that the love of Jesus knows no political boundary, no cultural boundary, no demographic boundary, and we've been given the most exceedingly great reward of all time, God with us. So let's go out from here today ready to share that gift with others. Amen? Let's let these words from the psalmist carry us into our time of worship. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Let's pray. God, thank you for your grace. Lord, when we're in seasons of distraction, seasons of of not seeing the, the glory of what you've bestowed on us clearly. Lord, you're always right there. And your spirit is always ready to, to reveal the emptiness of what we've been pursuing and the fullness of what you provide. Thank you for that grace, Lord, that we don't have to earn our way back to you. We just have to open our eyes again and see the glory of the prize of God with us, Emmanuel, Jesus himself. I pray that going from here this morning, that the weight of that gift would overshadow the things that we've been, that we've been filling, that we've been using to, to fill in the, the gaps, Lord. And help us to walk in fellowship, uh, in confession, in celebration, in enjoyment of what you've provided. We give you all these things in Jesus' name.